So again, this is a delightfully large topic that I could probably spend the rest of the afternoon on, and I will really try to contain myself to just a few thoughts and hopefully help you in thinking through the newly diagnosed patient with myeloma. These are my disclosures. And so I always like to start at the beginning when we are so overwhelmed and at such a um, spoiled for choice that in the first 150 years of myeloma history, we really had nothing useful to offer our patients from when the first case was diagnosed until we achieved our first CR was over 150 years. And then suddenly, just in the last 15, we have not only so many uh, insights into the disease itself, but we're able to target this, take this to clinic, and it's translating into a survival benefit in real time. So I think there is no more exciting time to be in myeloma, even though it may be a little overwhelming at times. And so when you sit with your newly diagnosed patient, I think we now have options. And so rather than trying to find an answer for how would you treat Mr. Smith, I hope to give you a bit of a structure on how to think about that patient so that you can get to that best therapy for him at that time. And so certainly we can start with a disease. We've had a lot of insight into the biophysiology of myeloma. The risk stratification, there are a number of models, some things that are more universal than others, but uh, in addition to what we recognize as our ISS and revised ISS, there are another, a number of other factors of myeloma that would make you worry more about a patient and treat them differently and take that into consideration. Certainly organ involvement, a patient with renal involvement has a certain urgency that may be a patient who was incidentally noted to be anemic in a pre-surgical blood test would not. Then you look at the rest of the patient. I have patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way up to the 90s. I don't think we look at age quite as much as we used to, and we certainly don't have to put our hat on transplant eligibility as hard stop as it used to be when all we had was melphalan. But performance status is the guiding principle. So my topic was the fit patient, not the young patient. Um, most of our patients are, on average, in their 60s or 70s, and so comorbidities, not only what other disease states are they battling, but what other medications does it require they be on, can also inform your decision. And their mobility, are they able to come into the office? And lastly, this becomes increasingly relevant as you move through lines of therapy, but of the drugs that you do have available to you, what are the expected toxicities? How will they meld with the other medications the patient may be on? And again, as you proceed, how did they do with prior lines of therapy? So thinking of the patient, if we accept, because these were topics covered at last year's meeting, that a triplet is probably the way to go with a fit, newly diagnosed patient, a diabetic patient who may have neuropathy versus another patient with hypertension, maybe cardiac disease on a statin, you would choose different members of the same class uh, to represent in that uh, combination. Similarly, I mentioned renal function is probably one of the few urgencies that we have in a newly diagnosed patient, but their mobility, do they have a spinal fracture? Are they bed bound? That goes into your coagulopathy risk. 
What about their hematopoietic reserve? Many times we'll start a patient on a regimen, we'll adjust doses because of their cytopenias, but if that cytopenia was due to marrow involvement, as they respond to therapy, you may need to alter that. If that um, anemia is also related to the renal dysfunction, as that improves. So keeping in mind to adjust the patient at every cycle to make sure we are fully treating them at every step. And then quality of life, which I think we focus a lot on on our elderly patient, really should be extended to everybody given the number of options that we have. Which takes us to drug selection. What a wonderful problem to have that we have too many drugs and we don't know which one to pick. They are all likely to benefit your patient. Um, so we can take into account route of administration, the schedule, how many visits does it require. I mentioned the side effect profile. Again, not only the toxicity, but how it interacts with other medications. And that allows us not to just pick a therapy for the patient sitting in front of you, but to pick the best drug in the best combination for that patient at that time. Because as exciting as our findings and results have been, we know given enough time, myeloma will relapse and you will need another combination. And so the treatment paradigm hasn't really changed very much. We, on a fit patient, would consider that induction followed by transplant, consolidation, and maintenance are the four general steps. But picking which patient really requires what step in what order, I think, is uh, not so clear. So what combination to use for induction, how long to keep them on the combination therapy prior to taking them to transplant, whether to use the transplant up front or as a salvage therapy, who gets consolidation and for how long. That is uh, certainly not a universal practice. And then maintenance, as we have more and more agents that may be tolerated, how long do we keep them on? Do we use combinations? And at what cost um, to the patient and to the society at large? So these are the most recent NCCN guidelines. They are relatively simple. They tend to expand and contract every year. I'll focus very briefly on the so-called preferred regimens, but you see that only captures half of the options you have up front just for checking. So here are a few induction triplets. I will breeze through these. This is more to give you the idea. I think despite the fact that RVD has probably been the accepted uh, frontline therapy in the United States for many years, we now have the evidence to support it. Um, both with a progression-free survival benefit, overall survival benefit, and as you will see with other trials, the depth of response and the benefits certainly seem to be greater in patients with deeper responses. Similar with Cybor-D, so cytoxin-bortezomib dexamethasone, rapid responses, particularly maybe in that patient with renal disease that you need a quick response and a quick time to initiation of therapy, also a very good um, preparation to get them to transplant. So another um, concept that we'll see a few times throughout the talk is the sequential therapies and continuous therapies taking you deeper and deeper. Um, so doxol, uh, the liposomal doxorubicin with bortezomib and dexamethasone, another triplet that gives you progression-free and a tendency towards overall survival, median certainly not reached. Um, and again, the younger patient, the lower stage, and that depth of response seems to indicate these are patients who are more um, clearly benefiting. 
I would say carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone was uh, one of the big um, triplets, I think, that may be changing the way we practice, at least in the United States. Um, the data here, again, looking at induction, transplant, maintenance, so it's part of a complete package, we're seeing that either with or without a transplant, we had what were really unprecedentedly high response rates. And they get deeper with further therapy and certainly with the addition of a transplant. So we'll see that as a recurring theme as well. This was also <clears throat> um, one of the first studies to show us, uh, I think as Dr. Kumar showed us this morning, that myeloma patients are really doing remarkably well. This is not the um, field that it was five years ago. And it was the early stages of incorporating minimal residual disease analysis into our clinical trials. And we were given not only that, the data, but by two different modalities. So you see that um, MRD is really minimal detectable disease. If we can get it down to 10 to the minus 4, 5, 6, I think as we get better at detecting it, that completeness of a complete response is a moving target. Although, as we saw by the debate this morning, the role of MRD and how to best use it is still up for debate. The other beautiful thing of this um, was that we think a lot of risk stratification by cytogenetics, and these responses were disease agnostic, meaning even in a patient with high-risk disease, there is reason to hope for very high response rates. And lastly, uh, of the five on the NCCN, is the exasimib lenalidomide dexamethasone, this time providing us with an all-oral triplet. Data's early yet, but certainly encouraging. And so I've separated out, uh, again, the, the top chosen triplets. There are evidence to support other triplets as well with bortezomib thalidomide dexamethasone, cytoxin lenalidomide dexamethasone, certainly biaxin with lenalidomide dexamethasone, and uh, bendamustine with bortezomib. So the number of triplets is vast. They are all supported by evidence to different degrees. But we also have... Um, a number of four drug regimens. I would be remiss not to mention thalidomide with the bird. Um, this was Dr. Mark's work. Cyclone, which I'll show you briefly. Um, bortezomib thalidomide dex with cytoxin, something we actually have evidence for. And even though it's extrapolating from the elderly or transplant ineligible patients, the newest quad if you will call it that, being DARA-VMP. Although I would say a monoclonal antibody with a triplet may be different than a four-drug combination. And those will be upcoming as well. And so, again, just to briefly mention, T-Bird was a four-drug combination. It was robust, but it not, uh, did not justify the increased toxicity of the fourth drug. Cyclone, again, a four-drug combination, very good responses, but adding additional toxicity that is not warranted. And so what comparison data do we actually have? Not so much. Um, the VTD, so this was, again, comparing a three-drug combination to the four. Um, there are a number of different PFS analyses. No matter how you cut it, the triplet came out on top. So maybe three is better than four. And again, the depth of response tends to predict improved outcomes in survival. 
the upfront protocol, yes, again, in a transplant ineligible population, but probably the most robust comparative data that we have um, comparing bortezomib dex with a triplet of bortezomib thaldex or bortezomib MP. Um, this was a large study. It was randomized. We remember there was no difference in response, even with continuous therapy uh, at the end of maintenance. And it translated to no change in PFS, no change in overall survival. So maybe even a doublet could outdo a triplet. So I think the take home message is really to closely select your combinations. More is not always better. It's picking the right players who can synergize with each other for your patient. And a couple years ago at ASH, we showed that VTD was superior to VCD, and I think that has been now extrapolated to a class and generally accepted that a proteasome inhibitor, imid, and dexamethasone combination is probably your most powerful triplet um, in the upfront setting at the moment. So a momentary comment on the uh, Elcyone, just because I think that the monoclonal antibodies will not be the same as adding a fourth drug. So this is going to be a change, and as we were saying, maybe in the next few years, if we come back to these topics, we'll have very different stories to tell. So, so many options. It sounds like a problem, but it really isn't. We're just spoiled for choice. Um, but let's not forget transplant. And for those who know me, this is, uh, I think, out of character. But I think as much as we would love to see our patients not have to go through the toxicity and the time out of their lives to go through a transplant, it does absolutely still have a role in our armamentarium. So the determination trial, which was set to decide, do patients need to go through a transplant, comparing continuous RD versus a transplant with everybody getting maintenance, um, did show that the use of transplant does equal translate into a higher CR rate and certainly a PFS benefit. However, at three years, the overall survival was the same. So you'll remember if you look at PFS, you may be in favor of transplant. If you're an overall survival purist, then maybe there's not a difference. I think the most important message was this deepening of response with ongoing therapy. So this is from a different study, but again showing that not only the number of responders increases, but the quality of that response increases. Um, and this idea of continuing the patient through that treatment paradigm will get them there. <clears throat> I think the best evidence we have, and maybe never to be repeated again, is a study of induction followed by a first randomization to ongoing chemotherapy versus a transplant, and then a second randomization looking at the role of maintenance um, in both arms. Um, and again, looking at progression-free survival, the transplant seems to be the more important um, part of the regimen. It seems to be um, beneficial whether you have maintenance or not. However, for overall survival, the maintenance component seems to be the most important. So maintaining that patient on a continuous therapy is the overall survival benefit. And so one of the thoughts um, on PFS is by keeping them on maintenance, you are delaying that clonal evolution. And so the PFS is longer and without maintenance, without the break in the system, you're allowing for faster clonal evolution. But on the flip side, once the patient does uh, come out of uh, remission, 
that relapse will be chemo-resistant if they happen to have been on therapy, whereas you may have an easier time treating a chemo-sensitive relapse if they've not been on maintenance. A word on maintenance. Again, I think this is the most robust, largest number, um, very well-done meta-analysis that went back to patient-level data and really put the question to rest on whether or not we should be maintaining our patients Excuse me. Um, this, of course, being lenalidomide maintenance, this is the evidence-based, um, but data will show if we could maybe use others or use combination of therapy, but the concept of maintenance, I think, is here to stay. It is one of the few things that we have overall survival benefit data for. And so a quick, uh, just mentioned the stamina trial had, look, can we do better? So putting someone through a transplant and then lenalidomide maintenance is good. Can we improve either depth of response or survival by adding a second transplant or by adding a consolidation step? And as we saw this morning, again, uh, there's no difference between the three, which I think surprised many of us. And lastly, just a quick word on depth of response. I think the debate this morning proved how uh, sure and in consensus we all are. But I think theoretically, the deeper you treat, the idea is that you can get them below that limit of detection, which again is a moving target as we find better and better ways of detecting that minimal residual disease. And as our drugs get better and better at not only getting patients to a very low level, um, but also trying to keep them there, hopefully for long enough where, um, as Dr. Geralt mentioned, other competing things um, fight for survival of our patients. And so we have, since the time of CRs, obtaining a CR is good, a stringent CR is better, an immunophenotypic CR is better, and now maybe an MRD negative state even better. So whether you do it at induction or after a transplant, it doesn't seem to matter. You'll recall that patients who deepen their response during the maintenance phase tend to do better. Again, just highlighting the chemosensitivity role of these clones, but I think we um, now owe our fit patients to do our best to get them to as deep a response as we can get. Again, a separate study showing that MRD really are curves that even though it's an imperfect test, this is translating into a very diverging curve as far as survival. This was supported, of course, by the determination style, which regardless of whether it was continuous therapy or transplant, so by any means, as long as you can get to an MRD negative state, you will have a PFS benefit. And in my last minute, hopefully what we've learned is that one size does not fit all. Nobody can ask you how do you treat myeloma in 2018 without giving you at least 20 other pieces of data. So you can adapt to that patient and not only at initiation of that first therapy, but again, keeping an eye on the patient and adapting. I think at most academic centers, we don't go a cycle without reevaluating the patient and changing the therapy as needed to get them into a deep response. I think transplant remains an important tool and maybe we can get better at doing those as well. And as we move forward, as overall survival used to be a valid endpoint, now it took too long, we transitioned to PFS, now that's taking too long, so we really need better endpoints. And maybe MRD will be that endpoint, but I think we can do better. 
We are left with, of course, more questions than answers on how to pick these patients. I would very much like to see a day where we can identify myeloma subtypes and treat patients up front knowing that they do need an alkylator or maybe this is a patient who once they achieve their first deep remission needs nothing to maintain it. I'm sure we're over-treating some patients and other patients. It takes trial and error and a few lines before we can really find the one that will get them to that deep response. Um, how many agents do we use and for how long, I think, are ongoing um, variables as well, especially taking into account the cost of care nowadays. And just briefly, you know, sequential versus concurrent therapy, we haven't quite figured out how to do it. We didn't show much of a benefit um, in these two regimens, but there is another smaller study, maybe not the triplets we would use, but again, illustrating the continuous evaluation of response and risk-adapted therapy, so response-adapted, excuse me. Um, if you're not getting there with one treatment, find the next. So I am just glad we're no longer doing rhubarb or orange peel and certainly not doing maintenance with leeches anymore. Thank you so much.